Joining me today is a former White House press secretary to George W. Bush, co-anchor of America's Newsroom and co-host of The Five on Fox News, and author of the new book, Everything Will Be Okay, Life Lessons for Young Women from a Former Young Woman. Dana Perino, welcome back to The Rubin Report. Honored to be here, thanks for having me. You are a busy lady, and before we get to any of that busy stuff. Most importantly, how is your dog Jasper? I, I could do just an hour on dogs and Jasper with you. How's he doing? Uh, it's actually one of the ways that you and I first connected, right? Um, was dogs. Um, and I see that great picture of Clyde. Uh, is that Clyde there in the picture behind Th that's, you? That's that's actually Emma over there. That was there. Emma, okay, yep. But they look, they look like bizarrely similar, which is a total coincidence. So I remember when Clyde came into your life, it was like, wait, this is this is perfect. Um, and you weren't <laughs> anticipating, you weren't planning it, but it all worked out great. Um, so Jasper's great. Um, he is going to be nine in April. Um, in late January, he came out of the bedroom one morning and was walking real strange, tail down, hair up. Obviously, you know your dog, you know something's wrong. But yeah. fortunately, they can't tell you what's wrong. So we took him to the vet. Uh, they did a check. Uh, there was a small tumor, uh, a malignant tumor on his small intestine. Uh, they removed that through surgery, and then we've waited quite a while to find out what the biopsy results were um, because they said it was either a very common malignant tumor or a very rare one. If it was a very rare one, that was going to be very tough news, bad news. Uh, but it turned out it was the common one. The surgery was successful. And we're just going to wait and see what the oncologist says, if there's anything else we need to do. But judging by the way that these tumors usually go, um, he should be fine. And I would say about 12 days after the surgery, he made this remarkable turnaround. And all of a sudden, he was back to being his very athletic, affectionate, silly self. And um, so we're, we're, we're thrilled. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Do you ever find that when you post pictures of Jasper or just any of the personal stuff that in a way people care a lot more about that than just sort of, you know, what Dana might think about Congress voted two votes extra this way, that way, the other thing? Like there is some other connection. And I think this is in some ways partly what the book's about, like that people want something else beyond just the bludgeoning of politics. Yeah. And one of the things um, that I, you know, I have a rule, no, no politics at the dog park. Um, animals, our love for them, our, our dominion over them um, is something so special in life. And I grew up on a ranch, so all the animals were special, but the dogs and the horses were really special. You have that connection with them, that eye contact, that love. Um, I guess some people feel that way about cats too. Can't say I ever had the same experience, though I grew up with cats as well. <laughs> um, yeah. But I do find that there is a way to connect with people that, you know, like Donna Brazil and I, um, we were, we've been friends for a long time, ever since um, Hurricane Katrina, and she worked with uh, the Bush administration on restoring New Orleans. But we really bonded over our dogs, and we both had different dogs, our previous dogs, when we first knew each other, sort of like you and me, uh, in a way. And then, yeah. you know, dogs, unfortunately, they, they don't live as long as we would like. And then the best way to heal your heart is to get another dog. Um, so I think it's been good. And also, you, this year has been awful for so many reasons in terms of the pandemic. But the fact that many families have now, or even single people, 
have emptied the dog shelters uh, and adopted dogs, as, as I know you have done in Advocate for Adoption. And I'll tell you, I think that makes for, a, for kinder people over time. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you know the story. I, I heard the lockdowns were happening and they were gonna put all these dogs down. I ran to the shelter. They had the thing signed. Clyde was being put, he was unnamed. Unnamed dog being put down that day and we snagged him and, and he's doing okay. So, so before we get into the book, let, let's talk a little bit about just kind of what's going, going on, on in the world. It's been a, it's been a weird year to say the least. Um, le, well, actually let's talk about sort of for, your former job for a second because press secretary and Jen Psaki, um, I, I've been giving her a bit of a hard time on the show. She doesn't seem particularly well equipped to do this job. She's always circling back. Lot of lot of non answers. I, I suspect you've got oh, some non answer is an art, is, and she's perfected that art, I suppose. I but I'm guessing you have view. some sympathy. I have a different view. I, look, um, look, they've only been in office for six weeks. Um, there is a lot you don't know, and that's one of the reasons you would want to circle back. Um, she does come to the job with a lot more experience than I had because she was the spokesperson at the State Department under President Obama. And that gave her two things. One, a deep dive into foreign policy, which a lot of people don't necessarily have unless you've come up through you know, that industry or that um, department. Um, it, you ha it takes a while to learn all of those issues. Um, and she used to get a really hard time from a, a few reporters in particular. James Rosen was one of them uh, from Fox mm -hmm. News. But Matt Lee of the Associated Press he is an equal opportunity, uh, tough reporter on everybody. And they used to have a lot of tangles. And remember, she also got caught up in that whole thing of spying on James Rosen and reporters. Mm -hmm. So she, she comes to the job with a little bit more experience than many press secretaries um, up to, to date. Um, the other thing is, if she has a press corps uh, that is one, there's, there's not many people in the room because they are very strict on COVID protocol. So there's probably, I think, I think there's like 10 reporters total in the room. That, yeah. that makes it for a very different room. Masks also, I think, are a real barrier to communication. And um, even though somebody might try to like hold their mask away, you know, there's this whole thing going on with you can't read lips, you can't read expressions, there's all of that. Um, and the other thing is, I think President Biden is quite happy not to drive the news. And it's a weird thing because I think, well, you have the opportunity. Why wouldn't you drive the news every single day? They seem to have this belief, and we'll see how it turns out for them, that, that they can do their jobs in a very steady, easy way. And I use that kind of phrasing because that feels like the pace of the administration. Is that partly just because the media kind of likes them perhaps a bit more than they like that Trump fella. So, you know, they're not going to ride them as hard. It makes their job a little bit easier. I have a different way of answering this. And I haven't thought of this until just now because I haven't really been asked. But if you think back to the press secretaries, everyone kind of represents their boss very well. Right. So think of Ari Fleischer, Tony Snow and me, um, Scott McClellan, uh, we had the confidence of George W. Bush. You think of the press secretaries, even though Sean Spicer was not press secretary for very long, he continues to be a part of President Trump's um, sort of orbit, I would say. Uh, the other press secretaries, Stephanie Grisham, a little bit different. She never, she never briefed. That might be a little bit of a different one. But I think that Jen Psaki is just kind of in the 
approach, tone, attitude of Joe Biden. And so maybe you, what, what you want from a press secretary, uh, one, you might want some more answers, always. But you also want to know that what you are getting from that press secretary is what the president is thinking and how he thought about it and how they got to that decision. I think that she's actually doing that. Yeah. Do, do you sense that Biden is actually in charge of this operation? Because it doesn't really seem like he is. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I remember so many times. Do you remember how they said that Carl was Carl Rove was Bush's brain was, or that really right, right. Dick Cheney was really the Cheney, one in charge yeah. of everything? It wasn't true. And I, I think about this now, you know, the other day when they uh, did the attack on the um, Iranian forces in Syria, mm-hmm. did you see the news that um, they didn't tell Kamala Harris until after? Mm-hmm. So to me, I think, yeah, I think that he is in charge. Yeah. When, when you see something like that get leaked, not that they did the attack, but that but the vice president her? didn't know. Yeah. What, what do you make of like that process? Because it seems to me that there's got to be something going on there that allows that to get like, that's the story in an odd way, more than, you know, bombing a random caravan. I think you're with me. Love talking to you because nobody else has brought that up. Yes. Okay. This Biden team has been the most tight-lipped, disciplined, no leaks, no backbiting. I mean, people are kind of bored. Like, wait, we used to get, what happens? Even in any administration, you would get a little bit of that. But on the campaign trail, they were very disciplined. And I think that's partly because they keep their circle so small. But really pretty interesting that even as it grew from the primary campaign into the general election, still no leaks, Hardly any background. You didn't get any color. Like, you're like, what's going on over there? About three weeks ago, I said, you'll know that there's some tension or a little bit of elbow room when you start seeing background quotes from somebody close to the White House or within the White House who says something about uh, Kamala Harris that would make it clear that she is the vice president. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw that, I'm like, ooh, that, to me, that was kind of like, it was kind of the first time you had seen a little bit of a brushback pitch. And I don't know what's going on internally because you never see anybody. They don't talk. They don't do anything. Um, but that was definitely a little bit of a, just remember. I, I, and also, if I, were, if I were Kamala Harris, I'd be mad. And then what yeah. you have happen is you have West Wing versus vice president's office. There's always a little tension there, even though they they handle it pretty well so far. And Joe Biden is actually quite, um, I'm going to say solicitous, but he tries to be very inclusive of Kamala Harris. So even though he is the president, he will say, I did this. And then he'll stop himself and say, we did this. And I think that's a little bit out of respect. Um, And also maybe just his management style that he wants it to look like there's a team and a shared effort. And I think time will tell. Yeah. It's, it's a little early to say. So so while you're giving these guys credit on sort of the, the competency of how they're managing the thing, how, how do you think we're doing on the unity and healing front, which we, that was, that was the meme we got starting on January 1st. Well, really, I guess on the 20th, but really it's starting at the top of the year. It was like, okay, 2020 is gone. Now we can begin the, the year of unity and healing. That was the messaging for a while. We're not really hearing about it anymore, but I, I never felt that it really had any had any value because we know if the shoe had been on the other foot, 
uh, this certainly wouldn't have been about unity and healing. And uh, the bipartisan effort to try to do a COVID relief plan that they are now calling the American Rescue Package, um, that was like the whole idea was that we're going to do this together. And pretty quickly, it was clear that Ron Klain, who is the chief of staff, is not for that at all. Um, Again, there's a little bit of color from the meeting that um, you remember when several of those Republicans, Susan Collins, Romney, Portman, um, about seven of them, they go to the Oval Office to have a meeting with Joe Biden to say, hey, look, you say one point nine trillion. We say six hundred billion. Let's talk like maybe we can figure out some things. And Susan Collins, the senator from Maine, reports that during that entire meeting, Ron Klain sat you know, to the president's side out of out of eyesight from Biden. Shaking his head the whole time. Like, nope. Hmm. Nope. And she said she knew in that meeting. She's like, they have no intention of making this a bipartisan effort. Of course, they would love for, for some Republicans to say, oh, yeah, sure. Okay, we'll, we'll do that. Um, it's interesting, unity. When you, in any general election, you can find that a majority of people, a vast majority of people will say, they want Congress to work together, to get along, to do the right thing together and move the country forward. And then that lasts for about three days. In this case, it didn't even get there at the time. So it looks like we're going to get $1.9 trillion of spending uh, by a very slim majority of Democrats. And I don't think that you'll get I don't think you'll get any Republicans to vote for it in the end. Right. So as someone that worked in the government and had to like manage messaging and stuff, when they come up with these numbers, okay, we want 600 billion, we want 1.9 trillion, blah, blah, blah. It's like, doesn't it all kind of feel made up? Like that the, like, where are these numbers really coming from? Who's really paying for it? Like that there's never a cost. There's never a cost to be like, I'm the guy that wants to cut some stuff. So you'd never do it because, or there's no, there's never a benefit. In other words, like, I'm going to cut some stuff. No one's going to really give you credit. People just want more and more and more and more. Yeah, so um, you imagine that Ron Klain would say, we can do $1.9 trillion, but don't you dare think about going to $2 trillion because <laughs> $2 trillion in, to right. the year is like, that's why things cost $9.99 at the store. <laughs> you know, that's, they, they don't cost $10 because you'd be like, well, I'm not going to pay $10, but $9.99, that sounds that's reasonable. Um in some, and I think with the Democrats thing, when you, the more you look at this bill, there's very little, little that's specific for COVID relief. And they have a particular philosophy, and they're sticking to it. They think that the stimulus bill that Obama passed in 2009 was way too small and that it did not do enough to help the economy. And that was one of the reasons that they say that the economy stalled. They don't talk about the regulations that they put on businesses, all the things that they were trying to do to engineer the economy as the problem. They think that not passing more stimulus in 2009 was what hurt Obama. And Ron Klain came into this saying that we are not going to go too small, that the danger of going too small is worse than the risk of spending too much. That's, mm-hmm. that's their position. But if you start going through this bill, I just read this piece today by Isaac Shore in National Review. There's a provision in there for federal employees to be given $21,000 additional if their children have had to do school from home and that's been a hardship for them. It's outrageous. You check that out. I mean, there's the- Swamp, I think that's what we call the swamp. Is that what we call the swamp? That is so much the swamp. Isaac Shore, National Review, check that one out. There's the things like the $100 million for the bridge that 
Chuck Schumer wants uh, in Canada. There's the $100 million that um, Nancy Pelosi wants for that transportation project from San Francisco out to uh, Silicon Valley, where I thought everybody was working from home now, so why do we need that? Um, Actually, they've all moved to Miami. That's right. the real truth. Right, yeah. so that they could save on, on uh, taxes. Yeah. Um, there is so much in this bill that has nothing to do with COVID relief. And what, what, think back to what happened, what was born out of the stimulus package in 2009? The Tea Party. You know, they, they, they got the grassroots attention. I have a feeling that this could be the same thing. Now, I, I also absolutely believe that there are many people who have suffered in this pandemic through no fault of their own. A lot of restaurant owners, uh, waitresses, um, people that worked in the, uh, hospitality, and we could target specific money to them. Mm -hmm. But you go through this, and it is a big wish list. And part of the thing is that Republicans... Um, disagreeing amongst each other that's normal it's gonna happen but that is like catnip for reporters they're always going to report on that they don't do it as much with the democrats though they have lots of differences amongst themselves um, but republicans have not really been able to figure out a way to drive a message about this bill and i don't know how you feel about this dave but uh, the, le the legislation as written has a 73 percent approval rating across the country well, I think to me, it's just that people don't know what's in anything. It's sort of what you're saying. And it's like, oh, you see a high number. So you're like, oh, I kind of don't know where the money comes from, but I guess it doesn't come from me. And they'll just take it from somewhere. And then if it's a high number, that means I'll get more. So no politician ever wants to be the one. Well, I guess there's probably one guy that kind of does it every now and again, which is Rand Paul, is the one guy that's like, oh, maybe we can't pay for all of this, or maybe we shouldn't be doing all of this stuff. And that's just sort of how politics works. And then you sound mean uh, if, you, <laughs> if you right. Then you're mean and cold. That's right. Yeah. Then, and then, then you, you know, and we're about to see like right after this, um, they're going to pass a infrastructure bill too, and it will be probably four trillion dollars. Do you think that the Democrats basically fundamentally believe that you, at this point, that you can just print money endlessly? Because I, I just have come to that. Like, they don't, there's no economic principle for any of this. And by the way, it's not like the Republicans are so great. They, you know, Trump cut taxes and also the budget exploded too. So, like, they're all guilty. But I think more fundamentally, it seems the Democrats believe that you can just print, 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 print money, which also makes their position on taxes a little weird because then why would you always be raising taxes on the rich? unless it's purely to punish them, right? If you, if you can just print money in an unlimited supply, then why do you have to punish people too? Well, I guess if you, if you just need an enemy to point at. But do you think that, or is, is that all of government at this point, which is just, ah, we'll just make up numbers and just keep printing and, you know, we'll go as, we'll go as far as we can till the end, till we ride right off the cliff. Well, not only that, but I don't think that you have many people in business telling them not to. Yeah. Right, so, so who's, who's standing athwart saying no? <laughs> Um, you know, a few congressmen and people on Fox News, it's probably not going to not going to cut it. Um, and Republicans are also guilty. But look, the law of economics, it's called law for a reason. Um, the laws of economics haven't changed. Um, I do. I think the Democrats think they can print money, but also I think that they think they can tax their way out of this problem. But I'll tell you one thing about that. If you go back to um, Obama era and when the Bush tax cuts were going to expire, they actually kept them because 
economically, they knew that that would actually hurt economic growth even more, um, raising taxes at that time. So I don't know how they're going to raise all this money. I mean, hope, hope is not a plan. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want your accountant to be hopeful. Right. Um, and that's what we're dealing with right now. Right. So before we get to the book, I want to ask you a little bit about, uh, you've had a couple changes kind of in your in your day-to-day, shifting around your schedule, and you're doing like 87 shows and, and all kinds of stuff. But I also want to ask you about um, Fox and kind of what's going on over there, because I still hear this a lot when I go on Fox. Like, there's a certain amount of people that are just sort of pissed at Fox that a year ago were, were not pissed at Fox. Do, do you hear any of that? Do you think any of the criticism not so much anymore. is legit? Not so much yeah. anymore, no. I mean, I, obviously, I heard a lot about that, you know, right after the uh, election. But I think now that the new administration is underway and there's a lot of new programming, fresh programming here at Fox, um, it's kind of some exciting um, programming. Uh, of course, you know, in that 7 o'clock hour, uh, rotating host right now, um, Lawrence Jones was uh, hosting this week. Yeah. Did a great job yeah. last night. I, like, Trey Gowdy's been great. Um uh, Rachel Campos Duffy was good. Katie Pavlich. I mean, so like, wow, we have a lot of talent here. And so that's great. My job changed in that um, I was doing the daily briefing with Dana Perino at two o'clock, which I loved, you know, when you could come on as a guest. Yeah. And then the five, which I've done for nearly 10 years now. Can you believe it? 10 years in July. That's crazy. 10 that's years absolutely in July. crazy. That's been, yeah. Because Jasper's nine. That's always keep track. So we started in July of 2011. Um, so in December, just as I'm finishing up this book, just as the election's you know, sort of behind us, um, thinking I'll have a relaxing time, get COVID behind us with these vaccines, and I get a call saying, we have an idea. I'm like, oh, I love ideas. What's your idea? And it was um, for me to no longer do America's, um, excuse me, uh, the daily briefing, but to right. co-anchor America's newsroom with Bill Hemmer from 9 to 11 in the morning. I was shocked, pleasantly so. Um, I love Bill Hemmer. I actually am one of those annoying people that loves mornings. Um, I like doing that news first of the day. And mm-hmm. I have to say, so we've been doing it since January 18th, and it has been such a joy. I love it. And, you know, we do um, a lot of Cal- more about California, uh, which I think we should. I think as a nation, we should all be focusing a little bit more on the country as a whole and also in California. And I'd be curious, you know, that. We're on 9 to 11, so that's 6 to 8 your time. I don't know what time you all are getting up and watching any news, but we're, we're getting some pretty good feedback out of California, got some good numbers. The harder thing for me, I think, right now is figuring out how to actually manage the length of my day. Like One of the things I write about in the book is about work-life balance and time management mm-hmm. and taking control of that and making good personal decisions. So having the 9 to 11 a.m. show, which I get up at 4.30 to prepare for that, um, then having those f- few hours in between that and the five, which I, I need at least an hour and a half to prepare for the five, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. an hour, but hour and a half. Um, it's kind of hard to like, what, where else can you find time to do things? So that, that's been a little bit difficult. Yeah, so with your schedule change, well, first off, you know, on the, on the California part and, and doing an earlier show, you know, I tweeted this the other day, but we have something like 2 million out of the 1.5 million necessary signatures to recall Gavin Newsom. And I'm pretty sure that CNN has not uh, run a story We've on that yet. covered it quite I mean, a bit, would, yeah. Right, you would, th- you got, no, you guys have covered it. That, that's my point, that it's like Fox covers it, 
But if you were just watching mainstream media, you would have no idea that the governor from the largest state in the union, the 10th biggest economy in the world, something like that, is going to be recalled. Did like, you we get know enough it's signatures? Happen. So they're, they're, right now they have about 2 million of, and they only needed 1.5. We know that because it's a one party state, when they're going through all the signatures, they're gonna pull all sorts of craziness. But I think having 500,000 extra and yeah. we still have about a week, a week to get more. So it's gonna happen. But the fact that like that just doesn't get covered sort of shows you why we're in such a, a polarized world. Yeah, and, and also just the, the economic weight of California, both for the good and the bad, right? Uh, if this COVID relief bill passes, I think California stands to get $70 billion. I mean- I'm sure we'll spend it well. I'm sure. You know, what I think is very interesting about the recall is, is the bipartisan nature or the not, I sort of feel like it's a nonpartisan issue. Uh, as I understand it, a lot of those signatures are being driven by parents of kids yeah. uh, that they want their kids back in school. And there's the hypocrisy of the elites who will put their, can afford to put their kids in private school, but keep the public schools closed. And the small business owners and the restaurants who have just like fed up, like it never made sense to me. The closing of outdoor dining in California, it's insane. Dana, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in LA. It's 80 and sunny every single day. Not only did we have outdoor closed dining, we're still the last state that has out closed indoor dining, which at that, even that doesn't York, even make sense. In New York, you can have 35% indoor dining. Right, so New York, where it's freezing cold right now, you can have 30, 35% indoor. We have still closed outdoor. I mean, and, and we know that Gavin Newsom is still going out to his dinners and, and all of that craziness, but. All right, don't get me started on L.A. because then this <laughs> Or you'll get recruited track. to run for governor. Watch yourself. <laughs> they want, we'll see. Did we'll you get, see. Did you get I want to, look, let the recall happen. You know, I think I jokingly said it. It might have been on your show. I like kind of half said it like six months ago that I would maybe uh, run. But, yeah. And then every, everywhere I go now, everybody asks me, let, let's get the guy recalled and then, and then we'll go from there. How about that? You, you would be a very attractive candidate, and I don't just mean aesthetically, but of course it's true. Um, but, you know, Dave, we need people to want to run for office. And I can absolutely why would, understand. Why would, so you're, you, you know this, why would a good person want to put up with the insanity? To me, when, when for the few minutes that David and I have really discussed it, like, could I actually do it? Um, it's more about all of the heart, not, not the management, not, not, about knowing the ideas and what I would want to do and all that stuff. It's about the horror show related to the media and the destruction of personal life and everything else. So as a person that would clean that stuff up, what kind of advice would you give someone that would even consider it? Well, okay, if you are going to do it, one of the things you have to do, and like if you're serious about it, you have to ask somebody with competence, perhaps a friend, to do a very thorough opposition research dump on you for your own personal consumption. So, and, and that, then you can look at it and say, oh yeah, that was, yeah, that was dumb. Oh yeah, I did, oh right. <laughs> nah, that wasn't very right, good. Right. You gotta feel, and, and you got to see what it is. You have to be very honest with yourself because in today's day and age, the competition is fierce. You're gonna face a lot of um, you know, negativity and people could bring things up from your from your past. Uh, a, a lot of women will shy away 
Um, that's one of the reasons that, like, Elise Stefanik, the um, congresswoman from mm -hmm. New York, they focus specifically on helping women who think they want to run for um, office but are concerned about something coming up in their past and hurting their current family. Um, and they also are very reluctant to ask to raise money. You, that's one of I think, the hardest things that people have. I think you might have a hard time with that, too. You got to call up your friends and jawbone them and get them to give you a million dollars for your campaign that might not win. Yeah. And so that's hard. Um, so I, but I do think that if people are thinking about running, if you have a loving relationship, a great family that is going to stand by you no matter what, you can do it. You can get through it. I think I'm going to stick on YouTube <laughs> for now. For now, unless you're looking to get back in the game, and if you want to be my chief of staff or something, then we can. I'd be go a very good chief of staff. I would not be a good candidate. I'd be a great I, chief of staff, though. I'd be like Ron Klain in the background, going, "Nope, nope." Yeah, nope. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So let's let's shift to your book a little bit because you were talking about sort of your schedule change and managing your life and everything else. And when I was reading through this this morning, and I've got it right here, um, I I had there's a certain sort of Jordan Peterson feel to this about getting your life in order, but you know, you're obviously aiming this more towards young women. Now you say, you say from a former young woman, am I allowed to ask a TV host how old they are? Is that a question that can sure, be I, asked? I know, but I, so I love the subtitle, it makes me laugh every time. And I also think it's true, like, uh, so I'll be 49 this year, so. That's like, you're still pretty young. Kind you're of, still, but you know, this, but you think about people like, what do you learn from, let's say 22, when you start your first job? So 49 is a lot. You know, you, you go through a lot. And I get asked for, by a lot of younger people for advice as they're trying to climb their way up the ladder or try to get their sort of their life together. And I'm, so I wrote the book because all those young women that come in my office, I could do it all day long. I could have a mentoring business just sitting here taking calls, giving advice. Um, but I just noticed that they would worry so much. And they want a specific plan, which specific plans do not exist. Um, you can have, you can put yourself in the right direction. So when I say in the title, everything will be okay, that is true. But you have to do some things to make it that way. You have to make good, good personal decisions, um, time management. I think that there's a lot of freedom in discipline and having some principles and parameters in your life that can help you. But there's really ambitious, amazing young people out there, and especially for young women. If, if you're born in America, first of all, you already won life's great lottery. Yeah, you're good. If you are an educated American woman, then all you got to decide right now is how responsible do you want to be and how hard do you want to work? Because you're in the driver's seat. And I don't think a lot of them realize that. You know, a lot of them think that, um, that the guys are always going to be promoted over the gals. That's not true that the guys are gonna get the promotions and the raises anymore, that's not true. Many women are now the primary breadwinner of their families. And so there's, we're in a little bit of a cultural shift there. And it, it is time to step up, to be a leader, to be a manager. You gotta show that you're able and willing to do it and resilient. The pandemic adds another wrinkle. You know, how do you network uh, in, in a pandemic? How do you get FaceTime with the boss? How do you figure out what your next move is? Um, so I talk about all sorts of those things in the book. Yeah, do you think that the pandemic did anything, broadly speaking, to women in a different way yeah, than it did sure. to men? So per perhaps being home more, 
homeschooling, yeah. whatever you might be cooking, all those things. Again, of course, they're not exclusive to women, but as you know, because I toured with Jordan, I saw what so many young men were dealing with. And now this is more about what young women are dealing with, throw in a pandemic where everybody's back in the house and, and it's very different. Yes, um, some of the statistics about how many women have left the workforce are, will just blow your mind. That there are less women in the workforce now than there were some like 30 years ago. Now they'll come back, mm. that, that will come back, but what do you lose in that time frame, right? Because new colleagues come, new technology is introduced. We have a new software system here. I don't even, I, I don't even understand it. Um, but you, you have to get trained on, on those things. Um, you come back to the workforce and all of a sudden they want to cut your salary by $10,000 um, because you were at home. Now what's happened is the reason a lot of women have left the workforce is because kids aren't in school. So if kids aren't in school, it usually will fall to the woman, the mother, mm -hmm. uh, to be the one that stays home to help with the um, work from home schedule, sit on the Zoom, uh, take care of the family. And, and, and women have made a lot of sacrifices, men too, men too. Um, but from the workplace perspective, yes. If I could give one piece of advice that I talked, uh, that I talked about in the book, a girlfriend of mine uh, was the global talent officer for a big PR firm. And she has three boys. And she's one of the most friends that I look at as how in the world does she do it all? One of those friends. Mm -hmm. So I asked her about this um, issue with women. Now, this is true regardless of the pandemic. Let's say that you're going to have to take a break from work, whether because of kids uh, work from home or maybe you decide um, that you want to spend the first few years of your child's life uh, at home and not at the workplace. When you decide to go back to the workplace, it's almost always true that women will be looked at as a difficult hire because they might not be available you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. work, work share is a great idea and some companies are doing it well. The pandemic has helped a little bit to make some, for some more flexibility. Um, but there will be a gap in your resume, right? So it'll be like, I worked here, I worked here, but then there's this gap. And now you're coming back to the workplace. Oftentimes what Michelle told me is that they will be um, demoted or cut in salary, something like that. So she has this great recommendation. I tell everybody about this. And it's true for same-sex couples too, If you similar situation if you are going to take some time off from work to help raise uh, a baby. She says if you're going to take time off, start an LLC, little small business, easy to set up, pretty inexpensive really. I don't know what California price is, but I think in New Jersey it's like $250. I think Delaware. You want to do it in Delaware. Good point. And she said, <laughs> have a little business. So I would call mine like Dana Perino Communications. And you have a little bit of opportunity then to take on a client or two or a project here and there. But when you go back to the workforce, you will not have a, a, a work gap. You will have an entrepreneurial addition to the resume so that the chances of you being knocked back either from a responsibility standpoint or salary is greatly decreased. And I thought that was such good advice. I try to mention it all, always. So how much of, of what you have in the book really is just sort of like think about your life clearly? Because it seems to me that a lot of young people, especially because of what's happened in the last year, not only does the future just look very murky, like the future of the country, the future of their lives, like a, a career, you know, any of that kind of stuff. Um, but also they're, they're, they don't know like what, what they want in a sense of like young women, maybe they're, they've been trained for too long to put too much emphasis 
on career instead of family. Same could go yeah. for young men that that the where they're always being aimed at. Like if you if you were a young woman and you were just like I just want to be the best homemaker and wife that I can be and teach my kids and and cook and keep a great house. That's a very that's a very lofty thing. My my mom raised job. three kids. <laughs> she did not work when she was raising us, but then did go back to work afterwards. She worked before and then but had like a 20-year gap yeah. on that while she was raising three kids. To me that was a beautiful thing. But like if you if you say that as a woman now, it, it's kind of scoffed at by the mainstream. Yes, though I think that's changing a little bit. I do, especially as women now have more choices, right? So as I mentioned, a lot of women are now the primary breadwinner. So that's actually, there's all, there's a cultural shift happening there too. Um, do you have a life partner that is uh, okay with that, you know, and, and supportive? And I think that that is, that is changing just a little bit. I have a piece of advice in there that I call the whiteboard incident. And it's because mm-hmm. of something that Peter did with me. When I was in San Diego, when we lived in San Diego, um, I really wanted to work for George W. Bush. I wanted to get back to Washington, D.C., where I had worked before. Didn't quite know how to do it. I was working in PR. Really didn't enjoy it. And I couldn't really see how to get ahead. And we lived in San Diego, which is where everybody would love to live, except you're in L.A. That's the other place people want to live. <laughs> San Diego sounds pretty sweet these so days. So it's hard compared to Compared to what's leave. going on in L.A. Yeah, and the mayor, Kevin Faulkner, did a, did a pretty good job there during COVID. And he's, uh, he could be your competition if you run for governor. I know, I know. So I went to D.C., I met with a few people, networked um, with folks that I used to work with on Capitol Hill. At that time, it was August of, nine, uh, sorry, August of 2001. And then most of the jobs were filled, but they'd keep an eye out for me, and I'd come home, and I think I just really want to do this. So Peter says, let's, let's do an experiment. He gets the whiteboard out with his little erasable marker. He says, tell me all the things you want to do in a job. So I listed the, the things I like to do in my work. Tell me all the things you don't want to do in a job. So I listed all of those things. And then we assigned a value to those things. And then it became very clear. You added up. Staying in San Diego was like a, a zero. Mm-hmm. Doing anything in D.C. was like a nine. I'm like, oh, when you look at it that way. Interesting. I also mentored a young woman not too long ago, and she was sort of following in the footsteps of her family um, of, of medical professionals. And at the end of the chat, I said, if, if you weren't going to do this, what would you do? And she goes, oh, I am so into psychology, and I bought these books, and I've read all these things, and I've been listening to the podcast, and I was thinking about getting a master's degree because I'm just so interested in it. But I said, well, wait. Maybe you should be doing that, right? <laughs> right. Um, right. And so there's just so much freedom now for people uh, to be able to do so many different things. One last story I'll mention. Um, there's a young woman that I know who uh, graduated in December of 2019 in event management. Okay. She gets a job. She's here in New York. She's going to do events. They, and she, worked for, she was working for a company that did events all over the city, big events like runway type things, fashion week, things like that. And what happens in February of the end of February, 2020, no events. And the, I think that we are now on our one year anniversary of our two week lockdown. Yep. (laughs) So she lost her job. She also ended up with a skiing injury. Like, um, so she went home to live with her parents 
and she could have been quite despondent, but she was watching these nurses and doctors and she knew that um, in her area in New Jersey, they needed more masks. Her mother or grandmother was an interior designer who had retired. She had all this extra fabric. So she had a sewing machine and she's kind of hand. So while she was recovering from her surgery, she just made masks all day long, making masks, donating them around. Well, they were super cute. So then people were like, where can I get one of those? Where can I? So she started selling the masks and then she ended up with so much business that she hired a couple of other young women to work for her. And then she bought an embroidery machine and now she's been doing that. And who knows if she'll ever go back to event management. She found a whole new thing. And I love the resilience and, yeah. and the spirit. And also she was unconditionally loved by her family and it's okay to rely on your family in times like this. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's been so hard for people because in many cases we're, we're seriously separated yeah. from our family. I actually haven't seen my parents since this began because they finally just got the vaccines and you know they're in their early 70s, so it just wasn't Me gonna too. happen. I'm finally gonna see them in a couple of weeks. Good. But just lose, I think losing that connection, because you know people think it can be replaced by FaceTime and Zoom and it just can't. No, and the other thing that's happened for a lot of young people when you're on Zoom all the time is um, there's a lot of anxiety about your appearance. Obviously, I'm, I'm in full hair and makeup from the show I did earlier <laughs> from Fox News, and so this is not how I would normally be if I was working from my office uh, and I wasn't on TV. Um, the anxiety about performing and being on camera all the time, you think of a lot of people are kind of ex uh, introverts, Mm -hmm. Right. Zoom gets them way out of their comfort zone. If you have to be on a Zoom for three hours a day with your team, it, it's been a, it's been hard on a lot of people. Um, and also presenting in front of that many people um, instead of just doing it in front of your team or your board uh, in, in, the, in the meeting conference room. And you're doing it in front of everybody. And that anxiety about public speaking is something that I also talk about, especially because um, one thing that's different from anything that you and Jordan would have talked about. Um, to what, one of the things, one of the pieces of advice I give is you, women have to find their strong voice. So we have a naturally higher register, um, for some, especially on a zoom or on camera or in, the voice can be grating. And a lot of young women get into this habit early on from their teens. And it's kind of following them into the workplace where I call it upspeak. Yeah. Talk like this because they're not really sure about all the things. We just call it Valley Girl talk. Like, uh, it, I'm just telling you, you will not get promoted or chosen to go meet the new client or go on the big business trip if you talk like that. And a lot of people, Dave, they don't even realize that they're doing it. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can gently point out to them that they're speaking this way, they'll turn it around immediately. They can turn it off. It's like, well, I do that? I didn't know I do that. And now when they get with their friends, they could fall back into it. But I'm really, really big on this because I see it. I'm like, oh, she'll, she doesn't stop that. She's never, never going to get promoted. Um, but that's like, that's like one of the ones that it's kind of hard to say to somebody these days, right? Because it feels like an affront to their, to their yeah. very being, the way you sound, the way you speak. Yeah, maybe there will be an HR violation. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like they're gonna, yeah, this is my natural affect. But I, I, I've, I've taken a couple of young women aside and you can make it kind of light 
sweet. Um, I feel like we have an obligation to help them. Um, if you have someone in your life, if it's your, if it's your daughter or your granddaughter or your niece or somebody that works for you, you maybe don't even tell them, just give them the book (laughs) and and let them see it. Hopefully they'll, they'll come to it uh, on their own. But I'm telling you, I know that this has worked. There's a young woman who used to work for me who definitely used to do that. I also think it's a sign of um, a lack of confidence because if you say something in the form of a question, then you don't have to own the opinion. Do you see what I mean? Like, I don't know. I'm just asking questions. If you say it that way, you don't have to own it. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting part of the book because it reminded me of sort of why I can't stand listening to NPR (laughs) because they do that thing too and everything sort of sounds like a question and like it's never a definitive proclamation. And I can't stand it. Yeah, I I mean, actually, I don't listen to NPR for a lot of reasons, but <laughs> um, now that you that's say that. That's one of many, many reasons, yeah. No, but that, now that you say that, I realize I'm morning edition. Yeah, on morning edition. Though. Yeah, and even, to- even when they ask tone. the question. Yeah, even when they ask the question and they know what the answer is, they still do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's all scripted. Yes. <laughs> it, it's the worst kind of scripted. So I was really interested in chapter four because it's how do you find a role model? Yeah. And as you may remember, chapter nine of my book was find a mentor. Yep. And yep. that was not a chapter that I had intended to put in my book, but but what happened with me and Jordan was sort of an accidental mentorship, I suppose, because we happened to be on tour together and it just kind of happened. But that you made a point of saying, how do you find it? Like, this is something that you've, you've got to do. do. Do you think everybody needs a mentor, needs a role model? Yes, I, I, I do. But I don't think that the relationships have to be as formal as some people might think. A lot of companies yeah. now will have these formal mentoring programs, and that's great. Although sometimes I don't think they're really working. Like, I know of this one program where there's somebody that works in production, and they've been paired with somebody who works in accounting. But the person, that, that it doesn't really work. Now, it's good to meet people yeah. around the office, and I'm big on networking and building your network and meet as many people as you can. Um, but I, yes, I absolutely think that you need role models. Uh, I think back to my childhood. Um, I really wanted to be an, an anchor, a news anchor. I loved Diane Sawyer. Um, she had worked in the Nixon White House. A lot of people don't remember that. I liked how she mm. carried herself, her um, storytelling, her journalism. I thought she had such gravitas and dignity. Um, I also even thought of, uh, this is a fictional character, but I love Sybil Shepherd in Moonlighting. Oh, yeah. Bruce Willis. Yeah, yeah. She was the boss lady. And I sort of like, you know, there's a saying in uh, women's mentoring called or that says you have to see her to be her. Mm-hmm. That's another reason, you know, I like to I like to do the mentoring. Um, so I'm constantly finding role models. I have one now that I write about in the book. Her name is Anne Glogue. She's now Dame Anne Glogue, I should say, uh, a self-made businesswoman in Scotland who has the biggest heart and as her company stagecoach the busing company as it's grown uh-huh. internationally she got the she's with her her brothers and her split it up the responsibilities so they expanded into europe she did europe and africa and her brothers did asia and south america so she went to africa she had been a nurse in a they call it in england a, a burns unit um uh, for i don't know what we would call it here i don't think we have a specific name but she treated people that had wounds from burns and fire. She goes to Africa 
First of all, she refuses to pay bribes. Will not do it. And these, this has never happened before in the busing contracts that are ever happening in Kenya and Tanzania. And they, they said, well, then your buses are not going to be released from the port. And she says, fine. And we'll make sure that you're blamed. Mm-hmm. And she is tiny. I, I'm short. I'm five. I think she's <laughs> a little smaller than me. Really, really small person. She's got such guts. But what I really also love about her is her heart. She saw what was happening for uh, early childhood development and maternal health in Africa. And she was just determined to do something about it. So not only is she a, just a terrific businesswoman, I feel like she has such a gracious way of handling her time, her work-life balance, where she gives a ton with accountability. You know, nobody gets the free money, but she has a few clinics and an orphanage that she runs. Um, she runs the business, and she has, I think, six children and then several that she's adopted from Africa. And I see her as sort of a, a, a I don't know, peer role model, but, you know, even somebody that's a, a former younger woman um, can have role models to this day because I always want to be improving. That's why I listen yeah. to, you know, I watch your show. I listen to podcasts. I am constantly reading. I don't ever want to stop learning and meeting her and getting to know her has really enriched my life. Wait, Dana, are you telling me you don't know it all at 49? You haven't perfected the whole thing? <laughs> you haven't done it do yet? You know, do, I don't know if you're like this. I feel like I wake up every day knowing less than I knew the day before. I feel like the, the, the universe of knowledge is just growing so exponentially. I feel I have so much to learn. I never feel like I have read enough. And usually I have read more than anybody else in the room. But I always feel like I'm a little bit behind. I, I asked my friend who, as you know, recently passed, Larry King, I, many times I asked him, you know, what did he think the meaning of life was? And he always said the same thing. The only thing I know is that I do not know. I do not know. Uh, I just that, read a book kind of- by Adam Grant called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Mm-hmm. That was great. And, and, it, and it kind of takes some pressure off you to say like, I don't know, I'm curious, let, let me learn. Talk to me. Tell me what you know. How do you see it? How do you feel about it? And, and that kind of approach, I think, can help going back to what we started with in terms of unity. You know, Barbara Bush had a saying that in a marriage, um, both people needed to be willing to go 60% of the way there. And I don't know if in our public discourse and in our public policy debates, the, both sides aren't there yet. They're not willing to go mm-hmm. 60% of the way there. And I don't know what will help us get to that point. I don't know what what the issue will be that will help get us there. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, it's almost like it has to sort of be something terrible. Like that's the only way we could kind of come together, like the way New York was after a 9-11. Like yeah, because even the pandemic like, didn't really do it. No, if anything, it, it exacerbated yeah. itself. Um, let, let's talk about the last chapter, though. I feel like that would be a good way uh, to wrap. Uh, it's, it's called Serenity, How Can You Detox, Recover, and Find Peace? I feel like a, pretty much everyone's looking to find a little peace these days, that you know we're, we're home more, we're online more, social media is not making us social. Uh, the, the quest for peace doesn't seem to be going that well for a lot of people right now. 
Well, um, so I wrote the, that chapter because um, the, the, the serenity prayer was um, prominent in my home growing up uh, as part of the Lutheran church, but also my mom went through a program called Children of Alcoholics. So that's part of the AA system. And the serenity prayer is very important uh, for recovery. And I've known a few people that have gone through um, Alcoholics Anonymous. Bob Beckel, the, one of the first people on the five, yeah. um, he did, and, and, and it, it really helped turn his life around. When I think about serenity, I do you know those moments, Dave, in your life, and they're usually just glimpses, when you feel like you're right exactly where you're supposed to be at the moment. And they're rare and they're fleeting. It's such a gift. And I feel like that's what God's intention was for us to be able to have more of that. And when I mentor these young women, I find that they're nowhere close to being able to find that. So I have lots of different suggestions in that chapter for how somebody might find it. Um, so just some things that work for me. Um, I write a lot of lists. Uh, and if I feel like I'm being concerned with, consumed with worry or anxiety, on a piece of paper, I will write a, my list of concerns, worries, and then I'll make two columns. In that next column, I'll say, is this something that I have control over or not? Mark it. For the things that I have control over, I then, in the third column, make a little bit of a notation about what I could do about it. And then I learned this exercise when I was in college and pretty stressed. I take that piece of paper and I carry it with me in my purse, in my backpack, my back pocket, wherever it might be, so that when I feel that sort of anxiety bubbling up, I can mm -hmm. pull that back out and look at it and know, okay, wait, wait, okay, I've got a plan here for how to, to deal with those things. I've also found that um, guided meditation for me has been very useful. And then I would say one other thing, which is, as you said, we're quite isolated and we're on these Zooms. And even though I, I love the connection, I love being able to talk to you and to see you like the, in the Jetsons. Um, yeah. No, it, well, that's the irony of it, right? It's like, I didn't even know you. I don't think I had ever, I, I knew who you were obviously for many years, but I don't think I had done your show until, no, maybe I, no, we did do it in person once what? a little bit you before were in lockdown. Town. You were in the but, city. It, but in essence, we became friends through this yeah. thing, which is a very weird, you know, we've never, we've never had a drink together. We've, we've never had a meal oh, together. Let's it's, fix it's a that. very weird thing. Let's, don't you, we have to, you know what is, would really help that. in Washington? I feel like everyone needs to go and get drunk yeah. together. <laughs> I mean, with no phones. Yeah. But like, imagine, like, you know, you can imagine, you know, Ted Cruz getting drunk with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They'd probably strike up a friendship and maybe be able to get to that unity. Um, so, but anyway, the other thing that I started doing a couple of years ago was an exercise to get out of my own mind because something I remind people of here is just when you think everybody's thinking about you and you think that they're thinking negatively about you, you have to remember no one's thinking about you. They are thinking about themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also I remember like, everybody's going through something. Everybody. Look, Dave, you're going through something. Um, uh, my sister's friend, she is going through, uh, she just had a double mastectomy. Um, thankfully, looks like cancer free. You know, Peter and I are going through something. Everybody's going through something. So what I started doing is anybody that I see that I'm um, walking by or on the subway when I used to take the subway, um, people that I won't necessarily say hi to, I'll just say a little prayer for them. So um, like, uh, I remember this one lady and her daughter, they were doing homework on the subway on the way home. And I remember, like, you know, please help them get home, home safely um, to the guy. I, I hope that he has a really productive day at work. 
Um, I hope that she is treated well by all of her colleagues. I hope no, the guy that works in retail, I can't stand it when anybody is mean to anybody that works in customer service. And I really like, I pray that nobody's bad to him today or like negative towards him today. And it kind of became a habit that it really helps me mm-hmm. get out of my own head, get out of my own way, um, and to sort of spread this um, kindness because I really think that that's the way to reduce anxiety and increase your ability to be your full self that will hopefully open up opportunities and doors for promotion, raises, a change in career, or even if you haven't met that lucky somebody yet, um, open your heart up up to uh, meeting somebody and making a commitment. Well, Dana, that's the perfect ending, but I have to return the favor that you often offer me which is to bring Clyde on your show is, is Jasper. No, no, I don't need to bring Clyde on. This is my show. Is Jasper around or? No, um, I'm at, I'm at work, Uh, but hold on. I'm going to get something. Hold on. (laughs) So I went on the, that book tour with my Jasper book and I bought one of these. This is, Oh, there you go. (laughs) This is felt Jasper. You got to get a few of these, get a felt Clyde. Oh, they're the best toys. Only thing is, Jasper really wants to eat this. Well, Jasper should be allowed to eat Jasper. He wants this toy. So they're kind of expensive. But <laughs> if you go on Etsy, you can send them a picture of your dog and they'll make you one. Oh, and they'll... Even oh, has wow. like a little little ear. What a world. What a world. Dave. All right, guys. You're a great American and a wonderful person. Thank you. Right back at you. The book is Everything Will Be Okay. And everything will be okay. It really, it really will be. It will be. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in person. And uh, good luck with the, I was going to say, I was about to say good luck with the rest of the book tour, but good luck sitting in that seat talking to other people like me, I suppose. Thanks, Dave. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) bye-bye.